with your teachers. We started the book of Exodus last week, and I have only grown more excited about working through this book together. And as we begin this morning, let me just let me let me ask you, we're gonna take we're gonna take 30 seconds for you to pray for just a minute. And uh, if you're like me, Sunday morning you come in and there's just a lot on your heart and mind. I mean, you're just so many things you're thinking through. Burdens that you've carried in here with you, fears, anxieties that you've carried in here with you. You don't know what you're going to cook for lunch, and you're thinking about like, whatever, whatever the thing is, right? And let's just, let's together, and I know I, I definitely, I bear, I bear some responsibility as the pastor to communicate with you in a way that you understand, and God would bring those truths to bear in your life. But, but you know this, you have some responsibility as well as listeners to be wise and attentive and so let's just all take a second, and I want you to pray, and, and you just pray for you. Ask God to open your heart and prepare you for the preaching of His Word. Father, as we look into Your Word this morning, would You please meet with us? And help us. Uh, we're just people. And we're human. And we are weak. And we're uncertain. And we're distracted. And foolish. And feeble. Our bodies don't work very well. Minds don't work very well. We don't have enough money. We don't have the friends that we wish we had. Lord, there's just, there's, I guess I could keep listing. Father, you, you know our frame and that we are but dust, but you are not dust. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to really have our, our eyes and our hearts fixed on you in a way that will strengthen us this morning. Father, would you please strengthen us by your Spirit in our inner man this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 10 of chapter 2. Super cool story. Super cool story. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And just so you know, between verse 7 and 8 is likely about 400 years 
where, or, or, or between verse 6 and 8, where, where the nation of Israel is growing stronger, stronger, multiplying, fruitful. And this new king said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come. All right, and you, you can imagine Pharaoh meeting with some of his advisors, right, stroking his King Tut kind of beard. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives, Shephra and Puah, and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Do you, do you see a, a recurring theme here? The people multiplied. The people grew strong. The people were spread abroad. The people growing, multiplying, getting stronger, multiplying, growing, getting stronger. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, public announcement, Egypt, surely the Israelites are listening. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. How old is Zeke? He's 10 months. Okay, he's way too old. How, much, how old is Eliana? 
She's closer, but she's not a boy. I need a, a baby to put in the in a basket in the reeds, but that's okay. It needed to be a it needed to be a, you know a three month old boy. We we got we've got approximate you know, the pink bow violet's not working for my Israel narrative here. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a an ark. That's the Hebrew word. It's an ark. We are, we translate it basket. The Hebrew word is ark. It was a basket, but the word that's being used is ark. We're going to come back to why that's so cool later. An ark made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed... Oh, I already read that. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent a servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw a child. And behold, the baby was crying. I mean, you can hear Pharaoh's daughter go, aw. I don't even like making that noise. It sounds, I don't feel like a man when I make that, that sound. But you can just hear her do, aw. I'm not going to do it again. That was it. That's the last time I'm doing it in the service. I need to go you know, do something manly and shoot a gun after the service. Where am I? What, what verse am I? Verse 6? Yeah, verse 7. Uh, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call uh, you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, you, you know this story. This is a very familiar story to us. It's so familiar that sometimes we, we can lose the incredible, terrifying, gritty, panicky, awesome nature of what's going on here in the book of Exodus. And I hope this morning as we look at this passage that these stories that are very familiar to us will, will maybe have some new flesh put on them, that we'll be able to see it in a new way and really see the beauty of God's redemption story coming through here in the book of Exodus. Now, we're diving in to the book of Exodus. Last week was an introductory ser- uh, sermon, and, and the, the series, the series uh, title or the, the, the series um, uh, the way I want us to think about this series is that the, the book of Exodus is, t- is, is, is um, describing us as a people who are delivered by God to dwell with God. We're delivered by God to dwell with God. We're delivered to dwell. And that's going to be kind of the subtitle of the entire theme, or, or really the title of, the, of our study of the book of Exodus. Exodus, we're delivered to dwell. And then the, the, the book of Exodus, or the... Um, you know, I always have a main point uh, for every sermon. The main point of the book of Exodus, as we're studying it, is this. God delivers his suffering people using an unlikely hero in order that he may dwell with them on their way to dwell with him. I know that's a long sentence. Let me unpack it. God delivers his suffering people, right? So God's people, Israel, are suffering in Egypt. And God delivers them using a very unlikely hero, Moses, who we're being introduced to this morning. And God delivers his people, and and as God delivers them into 
the, the, uh, the wilderness and they begin their wilderness wanderings, one of the first places God brings them is to what mountain? Mount, Mount Sinai, that's right. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them instructions for um, uh, building a tabernacle. And that tabernacle is the place where God comes to dwell with his people. And that tabernacle travels around with the people of Israel as they are on their way to the promised land. So God delivers his suffering people using an unlikely hero in order that God may dwell with them in the tabernacle on their way to dwell with him in the promised land. That's the story of Exodus. That's your story as well. Because the truth is that God delivers you as one of his suffering people using an unlikely hero, Jesus Christ, in order that he may dwell with you by his Holy Spirit as we are on our way to dwell with him for eternity. You see how the story of Exodus is our story? That fires me up. I get super excited about that. Okay, so that's this is big picture. We're going to reference this statement almost every single week as we study through the book of Exodus. But the sermon this morning, the title for the sermon this morning is this, what's the plan? Question mark. What's the plan? What's, what's God doing here in this lengthy passage that we're looking at this morning? Because if you just look at verses 1 through 7 and you don't know, let's say, let's pretend for a second that we don't know the rest of the story of the Bible. We've got the book of Genesis and we've got the first seven verses of Exodus, and we've read through the first seven verses of Exodus, and here's what you would think. Sweet, God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. But then you get to verses 8 and following, and you're like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, there's there's this really bad dude, and he's messing up life for God's people. Maybe God's plan isn't being fulfilled. And then this Moses guy is born. Well, what's, what's the plan? Well, let's read through and try to understand what God is doing here this morning. What's the plan? And and the main point this morning is simply this. You can have faith in God's plan. You can have faith in God's plan. As we work through this passage, first let's look at how the promise seems fulfilled. Point number one, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to Israel seems fulfilled. Look in verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, right? Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And even in this very verse, it says, who came to Egypt with Jacob, right? Israel and Jacob, same person. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. And then the 12 sons of Jacob are named there. Joseph was already in Egypt. We know how the end of Genesis reads. And now we are getting into verse 7, and it says that the God's people were fruitful, increased, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Brothers and sisters, don't forget that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, it's one big story. And there are five unique books here, but Moses is the author, and he's writing the Pentateuch. He's writing this, these uh, books to be read together. And so as we get to the end of Genesis... It's not a hard break, and now we're in something that's totally unrelated. No, this is one story continuing on. Genesis and Exodus are more alike than they are dissimilar from one another. So as we're looking at these verses, hold your finger there in Exodus chapter 1. It's important for us to do this. And look back in Genesis chapter uh, 46. Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46, verse 3 
says this. He's, then he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do, he's, God is talking to Jacob. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Right? You remember there was famine in the land, and so um, Joseph's brothers go down into Egypt. Joseph is there as second in command in Egypt. God provides for Israel's, for Jacob's family through Joseph. God tells Abraham, or excuse me, Jacob, go ahead, take your family into Egypt. While you're there, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And in verses 1 through 7, it looks like the promises that have been made to Abraham and have been made to Jacob are being fulfilled, right? When, when he goes into um, Egypt, uh, he has this large group of people, and they become more and more strong, exceedingly strong. Look, in, um, in, uh, in Exodus uh, 1-7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, ex- and grew exceedingly strong. We're going to look at Genesis a couple of different times this morning. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. Remember the very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve, even before they had sinned in the garden? 128 says this, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Being fruitful does not mean plant fruit trees and have apples and oranges, and, and multiplying doesn't mean two, two times four is eight, eight times two is 16, right? That's not what fruitful and multiply means. It means go have lots of kids. So the first command of God there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 And Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says that they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. Friends, in these first seven uh, verses in Exodus, it's not a coincidence. Moses is writing Genesis. Moses is writing Exodus. He's using the same language to make it appear like, look, God's, God's blessing is on the people of Israel. God's promise to Abraham and to Jacob is being fulfilled. And if we didn't already know the rest of the book of Exodus, we would think that here we go. This is it. The seed of the woman is bearing fruit, and, um, and God's promise to Abraham is happening, and, and, and all is right with the world. Because, in part, that is exactly what is happening. God told Jacob, go into Egypt, and while you're there, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you know what's happening in verses 1 through 7? They've gone into Egypt, and God is making, He is making of Jacob and his family, He is making a great nation. And as you read through the book of Exodus, I pointed it out a moment ago, it kept saying, and they multiplied and grew strong, and they multiplied and grew great, and they multiplied and grew strong. God is growing a great nation. But His plan for how He's growing a great nation is very different than what Jacob's plan for making this great nation would have been. And as we know, verse 7 is followed by verse 8. Verse 7 is followed by verse 8. But before we get to verse 8, I can't help but wonder this. We're going to draw a point of application here in just a minute. But I can't help but wonder if as, as God's people were multiplying in the land of Egypt, and for hundreds of years, this family was growing in the land of Egypt. I can't help but wonder if at some point they began to become very comfortable in the land of Egypt. Verse 8 talks about this king who didn't know Joseph. 
and begins the persecution on God's people. But I believe that there was a time as God's people grew in the land of Egypt where they enjoyed being known by Pharaoh. They enjoyed being the descendants of the great ruler Joseph, who was second in command of Pharaoh. They enjoyed living in the prosperous country of Egypt. Egypt was, I mean, it had the Nile River. It was an incredibly powerful and fruitful country. And so God's people were here in, not in God's place for them permanently yet. They're in the place of Egypt. But I believe, I, I, I really think that there, there was likely a time where they became very comfortable there in the country of Egypt. But then verse 8, things begin to change. It brings us to point number two. Persecution brings suffering. There's a, there's a lot going on in verse 8, probably actu- an actual dynasty change. It wasn't just that someone forgot to tell the next pharaoh, hey, there was a guy named Joseph who lived hundreds of years ago. We, and, but, but very likely the, the, the pharaohs that ruled during the time of Joseph were the Hyksos, if I got my history right, and they, they, the, it would have been a complete empire and dynasty change. I can't remember the ones that would, uh, the name of the, the, new, the new ruling family. But it would have been ones who not only forgot about Joseph, but wanted to forget about Joseph. They, they, they didn't like that old dynasty. The Republicans had been in power. Now the Democrats are in power. And, oh, you were friends with the Republicans? Forget it. Right? Like, we're, we're, um, we, don't, we don't remember Joseph. Not even necessarily, I've never heard the name Joseph. We don't know. We don't know that ruler. We don't know that way of doing things. And this this, this uh, growth of uh, the people of God is serious concern on the part of this Pharaoh. He's concerned that the people will grow strong, and he's concerned that the people will escape. Look in verse 10. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And I pointed out last week, I think it's ironic, that his concern that they would escape from the land is exactly what does happen. They do end up escaping from the land. And, and what this Pharaoh does is he begins to systematically bring pressure, persecution, and suffering on God's people. Now, there's, there's very little that's more difficult and um, dehumanizing and discouraging than legalized persecution. I can't say that any of us in in the United States have lived under this yet. But there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world who do live under this. See, we still live in a country where if you go to the police, if you go to the government, they're going to protect you, right? Like they're they're looking out for you. But this is a place where the government, the the police, if you will, had you gone to them for the suffering that you were experiencing They were the ones who were bringing the suffering and the persecution into your life. And so can you imagine realizing that the ones that you should be able to go to for help are actually the ones that are doing the hurting? And So here is Israel in a country where, and as we read through in several places, and I won't read every single verse again, but um, we see over and over that they were oppressed and they were were made to work with brick and mortar and all sorts of... uh, uh, ruthless slavery. I mean, there's just a bunch of different phrases in here that make it clear that what they were being made to do was incredibly hard and harmful and difficult. These people built the ancient cities of Pithom and Ramses, 
And a little bit of study of history makes it clear that this was difficult and back-breaking work. The pharaohs were not worried. OSHA wasn't around, right, like making sure making sure things were followed in a specific way. I saw a big grin get on the face of some of you men who have to deal with, with some of that stuff. These people, these people are suffering, and they're suffering intensely. They're suffering greatly. Brothers and sisters, um, I, I'll make this point again in a little bit, but um, let, let me just point out, I think what, what happened here with God's people in the book of Exodus is something that does happen to God's people throughout history, and it may be something that is and will happen even here where God's people get very, very comfortable in a land and in a nation and in a place that is not their home. And and we grow to feel very comfortable and at home in a nation that is not our home home. And then that nation begins to bring persecution and suffering against God's people. We cannot be surprised by this. God's people suffer. They always have and they always will until we enter into eternity with Him. One commentator says this, Before we allow the thought to arise that all of this happened long ago, we need to ask why Paul thought it necessary to teach the disciples at Lystra and Iconium, that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, right? So in Acts chapter 14, Paul is teaching, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or why would, so that's Paul teaching, why would Peter address the church as God's strangers in the world? So, so yes, Israel suffered and they were in a foreign land where they suffered, but Paul and Peter are teaching the New Testament believers, look, we're strangers. Life is going to be difficult. Jesus himself, in John chapter 16, verse 33, says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. In the epistles, Paul writes, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, friends, what what do we expect? And I'm afraid that, that some of the preaching and teaching of our day would say, as long as you really have faith, you will have health, wealth, prosperity in every way. And that is not true. It has never it has never been true for God's people. It is, it's never. Now, those promises of um, he will heal all your diseases, right? That doesn't mean that as long as I have enough faith, if I get cancer, that God absolutely will. And if, and if he doesn't heal it, it's because I didn't have enough faith. Th- those are spiritual promises. God will heal ultimately. All of your diseases, all of your physical and spiritual problems will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, in eternity. And in heaven, but th- it, it, this life will have trouble. It will have challenges. It will have problems and persecution. Many, many of our coffee mugs 
You're like, what are you going to say next? Many of our coffee mugs and T-shirts and wall ornaments and Facebook posts take wonderful passages from Scripture, rip them out of their contexts, and help us think wrongly about life. Okay? Wonderful, precious truths from God that are, that are, that are ripped out of context. Okay? I'm just going to use one this morning. I could go through a long list. I'm going to use one. Philippians 4.13. Turn there. Most of you know it. Philippians 4.13, right? It's all over. It's on, uh, I mean, you, wall art, coffee mugs, Facebook posts, T-shirts, sports teams, locker rooms. I mean, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through, Christ, through Him, Christ, who strengthens me. Is that an incredibly helpful promise of God? Yes, is it 100% true? Absolutely. Does it mean that you can bench press 800 pounds? And we laugh, but we have heard people use that verse that way. Right? Like the sports team that's like, I know, I know we're, you know, we're ranked 50th in the state and we're playing the number one powerhouse football team tonight. But boys, let's go out. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And Jesus is kind and loving, but I think he's rolling his eyes when, and he's like, look, I put my money on the other team tonight, boys. I'm sorry. I made that promise to Paul, and that's, I, that's great, but you're using it wrongly. Because look, let's just read the Bible. Philippians 4.13, uh, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you have no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking in being of need. I have learned, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can face all of these things through Christ who strengthens me. You can take everything away from me and put me in a jail cell. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can tempt me with wealth and money, and I can resist that because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think sometimes we'll take a verse like this, or I can't help it. Um, uh, I think Matt might have mentioned it. I know the plans that I have for you, plans of welfare to give you an expected end, right? Um, Jeremiah something, something. Wonderful promise to God's people who were suffering under persecution at the time and who continued to suffer under persecution for a period of time. Right? So, so let's, let's understand. Let's get our theology from the Bible and not coffee mugs. And if, if you have a coffee mug that has that Bible verse on it and I come to your house, you can fill it full of coffee and I will gladly drink from it. It's a true promise of God. Let's just, make sure, let's just make sure that we're not ripping God's words out of context and thinking, well, why, why am I not making more money? And why do I have cancer? And why, why am I having these problems? And why do I have relational conflict? And 
and, and why is the government coming against us? Well, it, because God has over and over and over told us you're going to have trouble in this world. God's people are here in this foreign land, and I believe that they've grown comfortable in this foreign land, and now they're beginning to suffer persecution, and it's getting hard. Pharaoh oppresses, but they multiply more. So look what's happening. Look what's happening. The promise that God has made is not being stopped by Pharaoh's persecution. What's happening to the promise that God's made? It's being fulfilled even as Pharaoh is bringing, even as the serpent, we talked about Pharaoh representing the serpent last week, even as Pharaoh is representing the evil, wicked sinfulness of Satan, and he's bringing his, his worst against the people of God, God's promises for his people are being fulfilled in the pain and in the suffering and in the sorrow. One person says this, that God is so sovereign that he can use your sin in a way to bring about good. He, he can use sin sinlessly. God is not the author of sin. He causes no one to sin. But your sin doesn't stand in the way of God's promises being fulfilled. Pharaoh oppresses, but they multiply. Pharaoh says to the Israelite midwives, kill the boys, keep the girls. Now, again, we're so familiar with this story that like, we forget the terror of this. In this day and age, in this culture, I'm looking at some of my medical personnel, but all of you know the answer to this. When do you find out if you're having a boy or a girl? The moment you have the child. So Pharaoh throws this command out there, and you can imagine the midwives thinking, you know, this is... We, we've been experiencing the oppression and the slavery and the difficulty of our task, but now we're being told to, to help the mothers as they're on the birth stool giving children. And then if, it come, if it's a boy, we're to kill it. And if it's a girl, we're to, to save it. And, and while, and you re, look ahead in, um, oh, I'm still in Philippians chapter 4. I was like, man, I can't find... I can't find the verse at all. This doesn't look familiar. Um, uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 19. The midwives who fear God and didn't do what Pharaoh said says, say to him, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're, they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, we're not told that the midwives lie. We're not told that the midwives, dis, I mean, we, we're, we are told that they don't keep the command, but maybe the midwives say to the Is, Israelite ladies, hey, um, you just go ahead and handle this on your own, okay? I'm just telling you, you don't want me there until well after the birth, right? And they go and they're just like, hey, look, Pharaoh, the, I mean, the Israelite women, they don't even call. Like, they're vigorous. I like that word, right? I mean, they just pop them babies out, and we don't even have time to get there. Sorry, don't know what we're going to do. Pharaoh is bringing a horrible decree that is terrifying to the people of Israel, terrifying to the mothers of Israel, terrifying to these midwives. And, and, and he isn't sparing the girls out of a heart of tender compassion and love for the girls. He's like, oh, you know, I can, we can kill the baby boys, but the girls, aw, Oh, I did it again. 
I'm kind of getting used to it. Right? It, it wasn't like that. Girls can be used. They can be dominated. They can be sold. They can be trafficked. They, girls are useful to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a special kind of wicked, sick, bad serpent god. I mean, and we're, we're seeing it like amped up here. But these ladies, we're going to talk about these ladies here even more uh, in just a moment. These ladies feared God and did not do it. Man, how bold was this? Pharaoh is without question the most powerful man on the planet of, at the time. And these two little ladies, Shifra and Pua, right? There's a name for you, Pua. Shifra and Pua, they're just like, we're, we're going to do what's right. We're going to obey God rather than man. We are called upon to obey those who have rule over us unless they ask us to disobey God. And then we obey God rather than man. Over and over and over throughout the scriptures, we see God's people obeying God rather than man. When man's laws contradict God's laws, we must obey God's laws rather than man's, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the consequences. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den because he disobeys man's laws. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into a fiery furnace because they disobey God's, or man's laws. Philip gets stoned and isn't delivered from the fiery furnace or the lion's den because he's going to obey God's law. Paul is in prison because he's going to obey God's law. John Bunyan is in prison because he obeys God's law. Martin Luther is persecuted because he obeys God's law. John Wycliffe is burned at the stake because he is going to obey God's law rather than men. So sometimes God delivers, and sometimes God's servants suffer the results of their standing against the Pharaoh of their day, but they are always ultimately delivered. And yet these ladies, God spares and even blesses. And I heard one commentator says, if you look in verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And it's possible that these women were midwives because they hadn't had families of their own. Maybe they, for some reason, weren't able to bear children and they were serving the, uh, the community as midwives. We don't know that exactly, but we do know that God blesses them and gives them families because of their obedience to him. So even during and through the persecution and the difficulty, God's people are growing and they're growing stronger and stronger. So God's plan is working out very differently than the people of Israel would have originally expected. And now in chapter 2, we have the introduction of this guy named Moses, and he's going to play an incredibly important part in the rest of the book of Exodus and in the rest of Christian history. This brings us to point number three. Providence has a plan. You'll notice I did the alliteration thing again. Number three, providence has a plan. We see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, we see the back and forth nature of the seed of the woman having its heel bruised by the serpent and the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We talked about that in Sunday school. We see it over and over and over throughout the Scriptures. And so here this morning we see the back and forth nature of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in these passages. And we see that God is bringing about seed from a woman, and this seed is going to be a redeemer. He's going to be a deliverer. 
Look at the beautiful faith of Moses' mother. Anybody know the name for Moses' mother? Jochebed. We're told in Hebrews that her name is Jochebed, and, and uh, Moses' father's name is Amram. I just wrote him right in there here in chapter 2 because we're not told here. Now a man named jo- Amram from the house of Levi went and took his wife, named Jochebed, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket, an ark made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, right? She made it so seaworthy, put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She didn't just kind of chuck it into the river, right? She's placing it somewhere. I, I wonder if she knows Pharaoh's daughter sometimes comes down here. I'm going to put this baby where I know it's going to be discovered by someone. And Pharaoh's daughter does come, bathes in the river, has compassion on the child, goes and tells um, uh, Miriam, who is uh, Moses' sister, to go find a nurse. Miriam brings Jochebed. Pharaoh's daughter pays Jochebed to take care of her own son. That's super cool. We see the faith of Moses' mother putting him in this little basket for salvation. To save the child, she puts him in. Now, Pharaoh has said, put all the baby boys in the river, so she obeys. Puts the baby boy in the river, but puts the baby boy in the ark first. And we know that God in Genesis had rescued his people. The only other time that this little word that is translated in our translations, basket, but really is the word ark, the only other place it's used is in Genesis where God rescues his people with an ark. And so here God is rescuing his people in this little vessel, this little ark, putting him in an ark for salvation. And God gives him back to his mother with pay and with protection. And, and note, note the irony of what Pharaoh is Pharaoh didn't view women as a threat. Remember, kill all the boys and keep the girls. Keep the girls. The, the women aren't a threat. Who are the heroes in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2? Over and over again, the women are. The midwives, Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's own daughter, over and over again, the people that Pharaoh wor- wasn't afraid of, God uses as the heroes here. I love that beautiful irony of what God is doing here. Pharaoh didn't view the women as a threat, and yet the women are the ones who are, who, who are, who are sticking it to Pharaoh. During this time of suffering, we see amazing women and their faithfulness. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the serpent comes and he deceives the woman. What's happening here over and over? The woman is deceiving the serpent. I love this. These aren't coincidental little, oh, Jeremy, are you reading something that's not there? This is clearly what Moses is trying to communicate for us. Let's never, let's never fall into the, 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 the wrong-headed thought or belief that somehow men are better than women, Men are wiser than women. Eve was deceived, and so women are more susceptible to deceit. No. 
That is what happened in that moment. But it's not like women are somehow genetically more easily deceived. These women are kicking it in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam. And I love what else is beautiful in this. There's just several nuances that I just can't help but point out. There came a king in Egypt. Where are we? Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. What was his name? No idea. Who are the two midwives who obey the Lord? Shifra and Pua. Two servants of the servants, right? The Israelite nation are servants to the Egyptians. Midwives are servants of those servants, and their names are remembered forever. This mightiest man on earth, we don't even know who he is. Even historians have a hard time figuring out wh- like which, which Egyptian pharaoh is this guy. We don't know. We don't have his name. So God uses these beautiful, strong sages of women to, to deceive the evil one. God took Moses, born of Jochebed, that should have died by the hand of Pharaoh and used him to deliver his people. That's God's plan. God took the seed of the woman, Jochebed, who should have died by the hand of the serpent, Pharaoh, and used him to deliver his people, the Israelites. What story does that remind you of? God took the seed of a woman who should have died by the hand of the serpent, and used him to deliver his people? Jesus Christ was born of a woman. And you'll remember that Herod at the time tried to have all of the which gender children killed. Boys, friends, it's one book, it's one story. Like, these are not coincidences. Tried to have all the boys killed. Miraculously, Jesus, right, escapes. Joseph and Mary take him to Egypt, where all of this is happening to escape the work of the serpent. And this boy grows up to be the savior of the world. The the seed of the woman who should have died by the hand of the serpent becomes the deliverer of God's people. This is Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman, Mary, who should have died by the hand of King Herod, who had all the little boys killed. And yet Jesus was raised up to deliver his people from their sins. And so as we, as we think about what God's doing here in Exodus, first of all, we see that God is really working in the people of Israel. His promises are coming true, even though they are experiencing suffering. And he is bringing up a deliverer that will bring them out of the land of Egypt and up into the promised land. All of that is true. It's a foreshadowing. It's, 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 um, it's pointing us toward the great Redeemer who would come and deliver his spiritual people from their nation of uh, darkness from their from their from them, themselves and their sin. And this first ver- these first seven verses, the promise seems fulfilled. God's people are very likely comfortable. And brothers and sisters, as I mentioned earlier, it's possible then that we may have grown very comfortable in a country that is not our eternal home. And persecution and suffering, which has been promised for God's people from the very beginning, should not surprise us terribly. Again, I don't want it. I don't desire it. And yet it cannot be a surprise to us that God's people would experience trouble and persecution. The Israelites lived under a government that grew more 
and more suspicious of them and more and more persecuting. Do you think, do you think that a government that was once favorable towards God's people and grew to the point where they no longer valued God's people but began to persecute God's people, do you think that that could happen again today? It, it is happening all around the world. It has been happening, and it may happen here. It, it very likely will. Not because I'm so, like, I, I don't know anything politically. I'm not, many of you are way better at all of that kind of thing than I am. I just know what God has told his people ever since this book has been around, right? The Pentateuch was the first five books that were written for us. And it is interesting, isn't it, to think that if Moses is writing it, then in chapter two, that's, that's like biography for him. He's like writing autobiography in chapter two. There was a, a Hebrew man, or a Levite man, took his wife, like he's writing that. Why don't you just say, my, then my dad met my mom, and they put me in the river. I don't, I don't know. Like God's telling him what to write. So brothers and sisters, persecution and suffering should be actually, I don't like saying it, but we need to know it, it should be expected for God's people. The Israelites lived under a government that grew more and more suspicious. And so what did God's people do then and what must we as God's people do now? We live by faith in the plan that God has made for his people. Now, the people in, of Israel didn't, you know, as they're living through this, they don't know that Moses, the, the one lucky kid who made it in a fair, I mean, can you imagine the other Israeli moms being like, oh, I would have never thought to put him in a basket and stick him in the river. And Jacob is getting paid to take care of her own son. That is not fair. You know, and then, you know, is... Is, uh, is Benjamin, is he too old for us to stick him in the river over there where Pharaoh's, you know, he's 13, honey. Yeah, he's too old. We can't put him in the river where Pharaoh's daughter goes. Th- this God's plan often looks to us like not only am I uncertain how this is going to work, but it looks opposite. Egypt is persecuting Israel, but what's happening? They're multiplying and growing stronger. Brothers and sisters, often as we suffer challenge, difficulty, and persecution, what happens to the church? You know church history. What happens to the church when it experiences suffering, difficulty, and persecution? It grows and it strengthens. That's not because we're awesome. It's because God is awesome and His promises are awesome. And so, so even as it has happened in the past, it, it is and will continue to happen in the future. Brothers and sisters, I don't look at this congregation and think, come on, Satan, bring your best, because look at us. We've got it. I look at our king. I remember how he has delivered his people over and over and over again, and ultimately and most importantly, he delivered his people through the work of Jesus Christ, his son, our Savior. And so I look into the future with a keen remembrance of the past, Because I look forward at America and go, huh, it doesn't look real encouraging and real promising to me. It it doesn't look like we're going to be able to flourish. So when I look forward, I can get a little panicky if I'm honest with myself. My young children growing up and I don't know exactly what's coming down the pike. 
So where can we find our strength? Where can we find our faith? What's the plan, God? We, we actually, brothers and sisters, faith, faith is strengthened not by looking forward with our question marks, but by looking backward with exclamation points. Okay? And you're like, what are you talking about? We look forward, and we, have, we do. We have a lot of question marks. God, what are you doing? How's this going to work? How's this, you know, what are we supposed to do as Christians in this country? What's our responsibility? What's our role? A lot of questions. We look, but faith looks back with exclamation points. Look how God has delivered his people time and time and time again. Look how he has delivered his people from the bondage of Satan through the work of Jesus Christ. Look at the promises that he has made for our eternal home and our eternal future. So just like generation after generation of Israelites died in Egypt without ever seeing the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and Jacob, some of us will die without seeing the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. We're gonna, many of us are going to die before that moment. Our earthly, our earthly lives are going to be lived before that moment in history. And yet we will spend eternity, because we've seen God's promises always, always, always come to fruition, though sometimes in ways that we don't anticipate. We see that they always come to fruition. So we look back with an exclamation point as we look forward. That's the faith that drives us forward. God, I don't know how you're going to, it's going to happen over and over and over. The Israelites are at the Red Sea. Uh, we don't know. Like there's a, there's, a, there's a huge body of water in front of us. And no one's ever like walked through the middle of it on dry ground. Like no one's thinking, hey, I know what's going to happen. He's going to divide the Red Sea and we'll walk over. We don't know how God's going to deliver us, but we just know that he is. Because we've seen him work so many times in the past, and we know that his promises for the future are good. Brothers and sisters, as we here walk through challenges and difficulties, suffering is promised to us, but it does grow the church and make us stronger. And as we look forward with a lot of question marks in our minds as to how God is going to work and how God's going to deliver us, let's look forward at the question marks with exclamation points from the past. We live by faith now in the work that Christ has done and the promises that he has made. You can bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the music team to come forward.